Dr. Julia Rucklidge is a professor of clinical psychology in the School of Psychology, Speech and Hearing at the University of Canterbury and the director of Tepuna Toyora, the mental health and nutrition research lab. I hope I didn't butcher that completely. Beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Over the last 20 years, Professor Rucklidge has become well known for her research investigating the interface between nutrition and mental health and has published over 100 empirical papers. Dr. Rucklidge is also the recipient of numerous local and international awards and is frequently featured in the media discussing her work. Her TEDx talk, The Surprisingly Dramatic Role of Nutrition in Mental Health, has been viewed over 4 million times, and she recently co-authored a book, The Better Brain, Overcome Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition, which was released in 2021, I believe. Dr. Rucklidge, welcome to Eurotrash. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, so this will definitely be a fun episode, at least for me. Um, And since I'm obviously expecting you to solve all of my problems in the next hour, uh, we better get to it. Um, So we often hear psychologists say that we are in the midst of a mental health crisis, at least here in the West. What Mm -hmm. does that mean and how do you think we got here? Right. Um, I think what they're referring to is the number of people who are who are self-identifying or identifying as having uh, mental health problems. And so the numbers that are kind of quoted around the world vary from one in five to one in four is the latest since COVID. So it's a, it means that between 20 to 20 to 25 percent of the population in any one given year is struggling with a mental health issue. And that doesn't that could be depression. It could be anxiety. It could be ADHD. So it's quite broad in its in its in what it captures in that in those numbers. Uh, but it's just sort of saying that overall, many people are mentally unwell or mentally feel like they could be in a better place and that they are plagued by symptoms that could be. You know, it could be um, you know, just really uh, low energy, low mood, just really struggling to get on with, um, you know, being able to do even the simplest of tasks uh, or feeling incredible anxiety, debilitating anxiety that can um, make it really difficult to do things that you need to do. Like it could be even so bad that some people can't get out of the house go to school, work. So um, when you start to experience uh, symptoms that prevent you from uh, leading a a good life, then I guess people start to go down the route of wondering whether or not they have, um, you know, these identified mental health um, disorders. You've mentioned that um, a lot of these symptoms or or illnesses are self-reported, right? Um, How do we know that people are not just more comfortable sharing these days than they were in the past? I think I think that is an element to it is that there's a there for whatever reason um historically there's a lot of stigma that surrounds having a mental health issue that we're very happy to be able to say to someone that you broke your leg or you have an infection um but there's a lot more reticence around saying that you're you're you know that you 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 know there's nothing physically supposedly wrong with you but that you can't um, negotiate the world like other people or as easily as other people. So that definitely has changed because of a lot of, I think a lot of campaigns, I don't know what it's like in Germany where you are, but certainly in New Zealand, there's been a lot of campaigns to try to get people to, to talk about it, um, to not see it as being something to be embarrassed about. 
so that they can seek help. And, you know, as a psychologist, I'd see those things as generally, you'd think those were, were good things. But unfortunately, because as I said, they're self-identified, there's no blood tests that you can do to get the diagnosis of depression or ADHD. It's based on finding out um, information about that individual and how they function in their world. And so, the, and there are symptoms and checklists and things that, that psychologists or other mental health professionals will ask about. But at the end of the day, it is often based on, on self-report or parent report if it's a child or teacher report. But, um, but we don't have this blood test that can really give that confirmation like you might with some other um, physical disease. So it's, um, it, it, it does mean that, uh, it, you know, that it requires the individual to go forward and to, to um, be able to discuss the things that are happening for them and or to discuss the thoughts that might be in their mind that might be plaguing them and um, and so there is, as I said, there's more of a support for people to do that. But that also the downside of that is that we don't have enough mental health professionals to deal with the number of people who are going forward um, seeking help. So mm-hmm. we've got a bit. I, I suppose that's partly why there's a crisis because there's now long waiting lists and it's hard to get in to see a psychologist. And so then there's people who are suicidal or self-harming and, and though, and that captures a lot of media attention around, you know, there's these people who are really clearly really distressed and there's no help for them. Mm. Yeah. I'm currently seeing a psychotherapist and have been seeing one for the past three years and mm-hmm. my health insurance here covers it, which is fantastic. Uh, but at the same time, I had to send like probably around a hundred, uh, you know, inquiries before I got one. Uh, right. And, and and he told me that the waiting lists are just pretty much insane. Right. So yes. I guess this is a global phenomenon, not just Germany. Oh, absolutely. Um, anyway, um, I'm 99% certain that I've had ADHD um, since I was a child, never officially diagnosed. I have to, I have to be honest here. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, everybody else in my social circle is saying the exact same thing, that they can't focus, that they're restless, that their emotions are all over the place, um, that they're also suffering from ADHD. So is it possible that we really all have ADHD, like as a generational thing? <laughs> or are we just giving a fancy name to our hyperactive modern lifestyle? I, I think it depends on who you talk to. You're going to get a different answer on that one, Zaza. So um, as someone who has studied ADHD since I, I did my PhD, which was in the 1990s, um, it's definitely gone up in the term, number of people who are being identified. Um, it's now more identified in girls. It's more identified in adults. It doesn't, you know, we used to think that people grew out of it and they don't. Um, but the bottom line really is that, uh, I mean, we all struggle with difficulties with concentration some of the time. And so we need to be careful about not just going around saying that we have ADHD just because we can't focus on our work and that we're being distracted by social media or all the, the bells and dings that constantly happen in our, our social life these days with, you know, our phones telling us that new messages have come in and that's distracting. Um, so, so that, that, you know, that, that's, that's something that I think we can all agree that we experience at some point at, you know, during the day, you might, you know, it might be a boring task. It's harder to concentrate on that. So, 
So I think we need to acknowledge that that's part of the human condition and that, but once it gets to, you know, from a diagnostic perspective, once it gets to a certain level of disability where you cannot function in your world as a consequence of not being able to focus, um, you cannot as a child get your work done and, and achieve at school because you are constantly distracted by the things that are going on around you at a greater level than your peers um, or as an adult that it influences your ability to work, then that's when people, you know, should be at least, uh, you know, thinking about whether or not this is the ADHD that's, you know, identified as a disorder. So, um, but I just, we have to be careful about making sure that it's, it's impairing uh, because as I said, it's part of the human condition. So it's that it's actually causing significant, substantial functional impairment such that it's um, worth exploring it more in order to ultimately, the, you know, the reason why you would want to do that is to get a good treatment, you know, to to be able to find a medication or a, a other alternatives um, treatment to support people support you to be able to function in your world um, more optimally but some people treat it um, by just their choice of careers and some careers being you know embrace those types of symptoms oh that's interesting what's what's a what's a career that's (laughs) kind of um doesn't worsen your adhd symptoms or is beneficial to them for example you have to think I'm not that old. It. I can still change right. Right, you my can. path. Um, I think you probably know it. Um, ADHD, I mean, it's a, it's a, the ADHD is ultimately a mismatch between, you know, you, you and your environment. And so you can change your environment in order to um, lessen the impact that these symptoms have. So, you know, perhaps a secretari- secretarial job wouldn't be the best one for someone who's constantly distracted, who can't stay focused on something or, you know, where there's there's not a lot of stimulation in the environment. But if the environment is stimulating and constantly changing, journalists are often identified as having, you know, ADHD, whether we believe that or not, but I've heard that a lot, or people in film or... Um, so... Uh, you know, an environment that's constantly, you know, stimulating your brain does lessen the impact of those symptoms. So finding a very, better match. Very funny you should mention that because I used to be a journalist for eight years. And um, then I I studied screenwriting on top of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned the two things that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, anyway. So, so then you can sometimes see... Disability can sometimes be a strength. And so I, I, I worry that at the moment we're in a point in history where we pathologize a lot and we are looking at our disabilities. And that's partly because we've, we're encouraging people to talk about their disabilities. But on the flip side is that we then um, maybe minimize the, you know, our individual strengths and, and differences and our unique attributes and, and see them as a disorder rather than as something creative or something to embrace. So, yeah, I don't think we have to always see these things as being a negative. That's a really valuable point. Mm-hmm. You touched upon it briefly um, in your last answer. So I just wanted to ask you, what did you think of social media in this regard? 
on one hand, and now more than ever, life seems impossible without it. On the other, I can't seem to peel a potato without checking out what my cousins, you know, had for breakfast like seven times in a row. Yeah, there's, I mean, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on social media and there are people who now that they make it their career to learn about the impact of social media and whether it's increasing the rates of mental health issues. And there are associations that have been identified where the more hours that you're on social media than the greater, particularly in teens, then the greater the um, expression of some mental health problems and um, you know, suicidal ideation and self-harm and depression. So there are correlations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, ca- it's causing those difficulties. But it does, it should at least make us, um, you know, interested to um, to explore that further to see whether or not um, it is impairing. But again, um, you know, what can be a, a problem can also be a strength. And I think we can't just see this in a black and white perspective. Look at, you know, you and I are talking here as a consequence of social media. And you found me because of social media. So is that necessarily a bad thing? My TEDx talk that you mentioned at the beginning has been spread as a consequence of social media. So people have shared it because they enjoyed it and they've told their friends about it. Is, you know, should I think that, oh my goodness, that's terrible that people are actually watching my video. Um, so, so we have to, again, I just, I just always worry that we, we, we put things into far too simple terms in black and white and that there's shades of gray. So social media has it's a technology it can be really really useful it can connect people in a time of covid when you if that we'd had a lockdown you know a hundred years ago the way we've experienced them over the last two years you would have been completely socially disconnected from everyone other than the people who you were living with whereas in fact you could stay connected with everybody around you and you could do facetime and you could do all of those things that we couldn't have been able to do a hundred years ago. So like any tool, it can be used for benefit and it can be used for harm. Um, you know, you can use a hammer to put the nail in, or you can use a hammer to, you know, to, to hit your neighbor or, 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 or something. So, so we, we need to see it as what it is. It's a tool and, and, and we need to then uh, put boundaries around how you're going to use that tool. So, you know, around whether or not you want to put boundaries on, on, on when you're going to check your social media accounts. Well, that's up to you to do that, but it does definitely probably play a positive role in your, in your, your life as well. So let's again, not, not see this as being evil or, or good. It's simply a tool that we can use for benefit or for harm. Um, in your TEDx video, which I encourage absolutely everybody to watch, uh, you present the evidence for the proposition that nutrition can improve mm. mental health. Yes. Sometimes even more so than drugs. Uh, during your talk, mm. you say optimizing nutrition is a safe and viable way to avoid, mm. treat or lessen mental illness. Nutrition mm. matters. Yes. How did you first arrive at the idea that food can actually treat something as elusive as mental illness. Right. I mean, I think when people hear that, they think it's a new idea and it's not a new idea. Um, Because if you go back in history, our ancestors knew the importance of food for our health. 
So, um, so it's, I, I just want to put, put it out there that this is not my idea. What I have done along with Bonnie Kaplan, who I co-wrote The Better Brain with, um, is that what we did was that we have put it back on the map. We lost, um, we, you know, we've, we, there's a few things that ha- have happened in our recent history that explain why we don't think of food as being relevant to our brain. And so one of them is that our food environment has changed the most dramatically it has ever had in our you know, entire evolution. So we've introduced um, things into our diet that our ancestors did not eat. So there would be things like your food colors, your preservatives, your emulsifiers, um, all of those uh, numbers on packages are things that are, are you know, made in a factory as opposed to grown in a field. So we are exposing ourselves to all of these things. I, call, I don't call them food because food is supposed to be nourishing and good for you. These things are not. So they taste really good. They've been, you know, there's been an incredible amount of cleverness that has gone into the creation of these foods to make them addictive for you to like the taste of them, the texture that you keep eating more of it because you want more of it. So they have really optimized the triggering of neurotransmitters in your brain that say, give me more, you know, in terms of like an addiction, like, you know, like heroin or, or other, other drugs. So it's, we've turned food into essentially a drug for some people, a food addiction. And so that's been over a very, very short period of time. So we haven't evolved to deal with these things, nor do I think we ever will. Hopefully what will happen is that we'll kind of see this as being an experiment and a really bad social experiment where we, you know, we fed people really crappy food for a hundred years and then we look to see what happened. That's basically what we're doing right now. And it's evident what's happened is that our kids can't focus. Our kids are really anxious. They're, you know, they're self-harming. The suicide rates and the suicidal ideation is going is you know skyrocketing as we talked about at the beginning so we have we know the 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 effects of these foods and uh we we can see the harm that they're doing to us now so so that's one thing that's happened in a very short period of time and around the same time we had the explosion of pharmaceuticals and so that's your drugs to treat mental health issues. So we ended up with Prozac 1987 that came out, stimulants for ADHD, things like Ritalin have been actually around for a long time. Probably, you know, that concept of giving a a medication like that to help people focus has been around for over a hundred years. So, but it's been over the last, maybe since the, you know, 60s, 70s that we've really used them in a, in a, in this really high rate as we use them now. So we went from, we've got the change in the food industry, and then we're putting these drugs out there to say, you can cure your mental health issues with these drugs. You just have to take one and you're going to be great and take that on a daily basis. And so that was incredibly, as humans, we're like, we seem to really be captured by this concept that we have these magic um, treatments that can cure us that we don't have to put any effort into in order to change. So it's been a very, you know, that we've we've embraced this concept of 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 taking a, a daily pill to cure our ills, and um, and while it would have been, you know, back when I was um, 
an undergraduate student, the idea that you could give a drug to change your neurotransmitters that were involved in mood regulation was stunning. It was exciting. It was, uh, we, you know, we thought we were on the threshold of finding a cure, a permanent cure to these mental health problems. But in fact, what we've discovered over the years of giving these drugs out to people is that one, not enough people have gotten well with them, right? So that's that's a stark reality. You just have to hang out in my lab for you know 24 hours and you would hear you would get you would see the emails that I get, the phone calls that I get, you know, just the constant barrage of people seeking help because the drugs haven't worked. So you can even just see it on the TEDx comments of people saying of, of giving their stories of having been on these medications. And not only did it not cure them, but it created an addiction that it's very hard to, for them to come off of. So that means that these antidepressants that we put people on, people, if they try to come off of them, the symptoms that plagued them at the beginning return with a vengeance. And it's not the, that it's just the underlying problem that's returning. It's that your brain has adapted to having these drugs present, that when you take it away, your brain kind of goes, right? It's just like, I, I need this drug to function now. And you've taken it away. And so you end up in incredibly, um, you know, this, this symptoms of withdrawal. It's, it's similar to, you know, if you were a, you know, smoker, and you stopped, you know, smoking cigarettes, cold turkey, you would experience withdrawal. It's the same thing that's happening to people with psychiatric medications, but it's something that we don't talk a lot about. And so people think that it's their fault, that it's just the underlying condition that's returning, and it's not. So we've, you know, so we're at now at a point in, in history where we are acknowledging that these drugs didn't do us a hell of a lot of good for lots of people. Some people absolutely save lives. I won't, I will always acknowledge that. There are people who that who have been helped by it, but the data show that it's only a very small percentage of people who are really helped in the long term. So we've got people who are then on the drugs who are still depressed. Now, if this was an antibiotic and you were on an antibiotic and you still had an infection, I sure hope that you would be a bit grumpy about that. But when it comes to antidepressants, we're not. We seem to accept that you should still be depressed even on an antidepressant. Well, I mean, what kind, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, kind of, you could kind of liken it a little bit to how we've accepted that you take a vaccine and yet you still get COVID. Um, so it's an interesting, it's interesting how we kind of think that that's, that's a reasonable outcome, an outcome. You know, I, you know, when it comes to vaccines, some people will say, well, of course you may, you won't have gotten it as seriously and severely as you, you would have if you um, hadn't had the vaccine, although that's quite debatable. So uh, it's 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 not a it's just an, it's interesting how we we can quickly accept that a treatment isn't as good as it should be, and that we still see that as being okay. So you perform studies on people with various mental illnesses yeah. and the intake of so-called micronutrients, which I believe yes. are various minerals and and, and vitamins. Yeah. However. For most of us who can't really participate in these studies, uh, you're generally recommending the adoption of the so-called Mediterranean diet, if I understood yep. that correctly. Yeah. 
a part of me is always kind of happy to hear that uh, because I imagine I can pounce on pepperoni pizza and pasta carbonara like mm-hmm. a hungry Yorkshire terrier from now on. But that's probably not exactly what you have in mind, is it? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> well, not just that. Um, so the research that I've been doing is on uh, giving people vitamins and minerals in a pill form. And this is, um, uh, you know, a, not a, again, it's not something that I invented. It was just something that I just happened to be, I think, in the right place at the right time. So it just, when I was doing my PhD in Alberta, Canada, my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, who I mentioned before, I co-wrote The Better Brain with, um, she was approached by families from Southern Alberta, Canada, who were treating themselves with nutrients and they were getting well and staying well. And the concept of giving people a broad spectrum of nutrients is there's no special nutrient. There's, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not here to say you should take zinc for ADHD or vitamin D for depression. You need, your brain needs um, all of the nutrients in combination in order for it to do what it needs to do. And so, um, so the, the, that's what we're doing is we're giving all the essential vitamins and minerals that you would typically get out of your food and seeing whether or not the symptoms of of ADHD or anxiety or depression uh, reduce in intensity. And they do for many people, but not everybody. I mean, nothing ever treats everybody because there's always, it's the complex, these, these issues. And for some people, it's not food. That's not the reason why they are struggling. It could be something completely different in their environment, or it could be a bit of genetics or, or other things. Um, so, so, but we, we gave these vitamins and minerals to people in an experimental form. We compared it to placebo and we found that more people in the micronutrient groups were showing improvement in their symptoms. So that gives us a lot of confidence that what we've observed is a real phenomenon because it's not just a placebo effect, which is often what people will say that it's because when you enter a, a clinical trial, often people get better because of lots of reasons. One is that we're caring for them. So we're giving them, you know, kind of like when you go see your psychotherapist, that person presumably shows empathy, care for you and your problems, and that that in itself is therapeutic. And and without them having to even say anything much at all, that's that's, challenging you in any way. But that care is important. And so we, we, of course, give that when people enter clinical trials. And so then you need to show that the effect is greater than that effect of that sort of that therapeutic environment. So we've shown that and it's also been replicated now by other labs. So that gives us even more confidence because you need to have replication because it could be totally something else that might be going on of why um, you might see an effect in one study, but not necessarily see that effect again observed in another study. So it's a replication has happened now. So that's really good. So um, again, more confidence. But you know, the the bottom line here is that you, when when you give people vitamins and minerals, we should all be asking the question of, well, why don't you get them out of your food? Because that's essentially where, that's where they are. And so that's where where you have to then um, acknowledge what I was talking about before, which is that our food environment has changed the most dramatically um, in our history. So what has happened to our food environment and that's what you should care about and you and and your listeners should care about is that we have replaced real whole foods fruits and vegetables your nuts your legumes your your um 
uh, lentils, et cetera, you know, just these real um, whole foods that our ancestors have been eating thousands and thousands of years with these chemicals that are made in a lab that do not contain the vitamins and minerals and any really, uh, you know, uh, any sort of major amount. So if you were to compare the vitamin and mineral content of an ultra processed diet, what we call the Western diet, which is really high in those addictive substances that I talked about before, sugar has got no nutrients in it, unless you consume it in its in its real form. So maple, if you were to have um, maple syrup from a tree um, and real maple syrup, not adulterated, not this crappy stuff flavored maple syrup that you can buy in the supermarket, the real stuff or the sugar cane, you know, then you would be consuming that sugar with some nutrients that came from that tree or that plant. But sugar that we have now in our ultra processed products is simply it's you've taken the sugar from the sugar cane and you've stripped it away and gotten rid of all of the nutrients and you've brought it down to its very fine, simple form of the stuff that makes it taste sweet. And you've eliminated all the nutrients that you would normally consume that sugar with. So we, you know, that, and that's happening over and over and over again in the foods that we're eating as in this, as ultra processed foods. So they are depleted in vitamins and minerals. And so that's our point is that you, we are giving people those vitamins and minerals that they would have gotten if they were eating real whole foods. Now there's some caveats here because Um, There are probably some people who need more nutrients than what they can get out of their food. They might have genetic differences that mean that their metabolic reactions are slowed as a consequence of genetic differences. And so you can speed that up by giving more vitamins and minerals and you can normalize metabolic reactions by giving more vitamins and minerals. And, And those vitamins and minerals are essential for making those chemicals that we know are so important, things like dopamine or serotonin. Well, you can make those naturally with making sure that the body has everything it needs in order to make them. But so we've gone from a, so we've gone from a place where we've taken the vitamins and minerals out of our food. You can't then make serotonin as easily as you used to be able to do that. And then we give a drug like a, an antidepressant to try to increase the amount of serotonin that's available. So we, I mean, wow, right? Like you're, you're going from a place of re- eating real food and our ancestors having really low levels of these problems to let's take the vitamins and minerals out of the food as this amazing social experiment that we've done. And then we can correct it by giving us um, the pharmaceutical drugs. Wow. You know, is that the kind of culture you want to live in? It's not the one that I want to live in. You know, that that's that's kind of we've ended up being, you know, creating all these different addictions. So so the fact that we gave the vitamins and minerals and people got better means that there's something wrong with the food environment. And then that's why at the end of the day, the first thing that should come from our research is that you should everyone should be reflecting critically on what they eat. As the oh, first thing to do. This is going what, to be a long night if I do yeah, that. Yeah. So, so Zaza, what did you, you ask me? What I had for breakfast? What did you have for breakfast? Um, well, I woke up 
super late and uh, I just had a cup of instant coffee right. uh, with oat milk. Uh, uh, but and the you oat have milk, oat milk. Why do you have oat milk? I think it's just some, some sort of uh, <laughs> erroneous belief. I convinced myself that I'm intolerant to a whole bunch of things. I've mentioned mm. at the beginning that I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. Mm. And these fads will just come and go. You know, one day I'll think, oh, I'm allergic to gluten and I'll eliminate mm -hmm all gluten yeah. products and then the next yeah. day i'm gonna be like i'm allergic to milk and yeah. then i'm gonna eliminate milk and, and so the ultra processed food industry loves you <laughs> i can imagine that yes. right it loves yeah. you because you're convinced that oat milk is milk but it's not <laughs> it's it's nothing to do with milk like milk is something that comes out of you know either you breastfeed and you get milk that the, the infant gets or you get it from from a cow or a goat or something like that from their udders you don't get it by taking oats and you you know spinning them around in a food processor and then it turns into a liquid and that's what you're 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 thinking is a reasonable thing to put in coffee and it probably tastes awful so <laughs> Um, but the food industry loves people like you because you then, okay, you eliminate gluten. Okay. Oh my goodness. I mean, that means you, that you, if you, if you take them, you know, go, go into a supermarket and start, you know, really indulging in the things that all say gluten free, you should turn them around and look at the packages and look at how many things are in there that are made in a factory and things that you would recognize on the backs of that package. I'm guessing that probably not a lot of things. And yet you think you're doing a good thing by taking gluten out of your diet. But maybe it's something, I mean, I would, I'm, I mean, one thing that why some people get, feel a little bit better when they take gluten out of their diet is that one of the things that people are suggesting that might be happening for some people, people is that they are reacting to the, the herbicides and, and, um, the toxins that we put the pesticides. on the yeah. pesticides that are put on those um, the, those crops, and that that's what is irritating your gut lining and causing a problem, as opposed to gluten. So it could be gluten, but it could be the way we're it could be the way we um, uh, we we are um, uh, you know dealing with crops and you know growing our crops and we've, we're we're taking so many shortcuts at the moment um in our food so if you wanted to go really like if if you seriously were celiac and you couldn't you shouldn't be eating gluten then i would say never eat anything that says that it's gluten-free on a packet because they're just there to try to make money out of you so okay. if i was having to go gluten-free i wouldn't eat bread be why would you eat something that if i throw it at a wall it's like a brick. It could break a you know window. Is that something that you want to eat? I mean, it tastes awful, right? This is amazing advice. Um, but <laughs> so, as you can see, this is a good example because I feel like it's a minefield out there. I'm going to read an article that's going to say milk is poisoning you. And then you next, the next day I'm going to read an article of milk are. is not poisoning you. And then, you know, on top of that, we have these marketing tricks. Like yes. I'm going to look at the box of cereal and it's going to say included vitamin zinc, exactly. added vitamin C. Absolutely. So I'm just like standing here. I'm like, what's going on and what should I really do? Exactly. So, so we, we, I really, I really want to keep this simple. It is simple. It really isn't hard. Eat what your great grandmother would recognize as food. And that should take you a long way. So did your great grandmother have those ultra processed cereal products available? 
No, but I might have had, you know, eggs and bacon and some real sourdough bread that was, you know, baked locally um, at the, you know, at your local bakery of meat that would have been grass fed, um, grown in your pastures rather than corn fed and in um, these, you know, these feedlots that, that we have now. So you're, you, you, if you start, if you, if you embrace that concept of eating foods that aren't in a packet, that aren't in a shiny packet that have got a thousand ingredients on the back, things that, you know, your fruits and vegetables, things that you get at your farmer's markets, your, your, your nuts, your seeds, your real, um, your, your healthy fats, things like your omega, your things that are high in your omega-3 fatty acids, like your fish, um, your olive, you know, olive oil is your main um, oil that you would use in cooking. Simplify it and don't be bought in by someone who wants to make a lot of profit off of selling you something that isn't a real food. So if you take that simple advice, then it shouldn't be hard that most of us shouldn't have a dairy intolerance. There are some but it may well be that you're reacting to something completely different and that, you know, there are, you know, there's an advantage to the, to the food industry to make you think that you shouldn't eat a real food, right? Let's start, you know, oatmeal, oat milk. Oh God. I mean, it's just, <laughs> the concept is just, I mean, unless you honestly have been tested and you have a dairy intolerance, there, I mean, I would be, I bet I'm guessing in Germany, you may well be able to get real, um, you know, raw milk on completely unalterated straight from the cow, but tested to make sure that there's no pathogens. That's the way we should be drinking milk. I, I love how with your blessing now, I'm going to be able to dominate my friends, you know, with your knowledge, all of those well, friends who are ordering would... oatmeal <laughs> cappuccinos. I'm going to be like, wait a minute. Yeah, I I personally haven't embraced that those those um what i would call they're not even milk right what do you think of this organic bio sticker things you know like if i go buy milk should i buy i mean should i go for the extra option with the organic and bio and pay more or is the regular store you know bought milk yeah because you did mention farmers markets yeah i mean the the organic sticker has you know it gives you the ability to sell it for a profit, right? And and really, did it cost more to grow it? It could, it could. There's the possibility of that. But also, you know, you know, something that we kind of go, oh, I've heard organic is good, so I'll pay more for something that says it's organic. So there's there's a useful website, and it changes every year. But it's it's um, if you just Google um, uh, clean the uh, dirty dozen clean fifteen. And you'll find the foods that you really should be purchasing as organic because the benefit of organic is that it hasn't been sprayed technically by pesticides. And we should be worried about the amount of pesticides that we're eating and we're consuming because we do think that they're having an effect in a lot of different ways. First of all, there are some that are identified carcinogenics, carcinogens. Others are, we know they're having an effect on our microbiome. So that's your, you know, your gut lining and it's irritating it and it's inflaming it and it's leading to, you know, a whole bunch of gastrointestinal symptoms. So IBS is on the rise, uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. And so those are things that may well be exacerbated by 
the pesticides that we're using on our food. So we need to be mindful of those things. And that might be a reason to buy organic. But there are some uh, foods that you don't need necessarily need to eat them organic because the the amount of residue that's a bit is being identified as being present there is far lower than in other produce. So that's why I just recommend that you, you get the most up-to-date knowledge and go and have a look at the clean, you know, the dirty dozen, clean 15, dirty dozen, meaning the vegetables and fruits that you should probably eat as organic versus the ones that are probably okay for you to eat, even regardless of whether or not they've been treated with pesticides. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate that it's so hard to navigate our way through the food environment, but because there's so much, so many competing messages, um, as you say, some, you know, one day they'll tell you don't eat milk or don't drink milk. And other days they'll say it's the, you know, one of the greatest foods around. So, so there's, you know, and there's, you know, some people will say don't eat meat and others will say you absolutely. And, and all of these different messages. And we also have to acknowledge that we are all different, you know, we're all individual you know, people and with, and, and some of us do react to certain things as a consequence of, of our history and other people can get away with uh, eating foods that don't seem to irritate them. But I think if you start with the principle of just eating real food, you might find that anything that's been causing you problems will disappear. So that really is the first step. Just eat real food. And, um, and then if that's still not helping, that's when you might decide let me start eliminating certain things from my diet, like gluten or like dairy. But start with the eating real food first principle. And as long, hopefully, you know what I mean by real food. <laughs> by now, I think I, I got it. But unfortunately, I think most of us go the opposite way. You know, we read an article and then we just eliminate a random thing instead yes. of just resetting. But yes. this is this is great. This is fantastic advice. Um. Now, we talked about this already a little bit, uh, but during your talk, you quoted somebody, I think, when you said there is no such thing as cheap food. The mm -hmm. price is Michael. paid somewhere. Yeah, Michael so Pollan. is it reasonable to say then that, or do, you, do, your, do your studies support the hypothesis that this kind of crappy processed food is actually a cause or one of the causes of the development of mental illnesses in, in, right. in general? Or is it yeah. just worsening illnesses that are already there? Um. I think it can, it is definitely a culprit. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not the only culprit, but it's one that we've ignored. And so we have, um, you know, in a way, a luxury of being able to say, oh my goodness, the food environment is clearly playing a role. We should, we should really start here because we would make such a big difference at a population level if we um, stopped eating ultra-processed products. Or, or limited them as a treat, as something that you ate on an occasion. And it didn't matter that it had no nutrients in it. It just tasted really good. And that we should still be allowed to indulge in something like that. But you shouldn't be eating that as your main meal. So that's the problem is that we went from a place of something being good for, you know, fine if you had it on an occasional once in a while to it being what you eat three times a day. So, and just, you know, and so that's, that's what's happened. Unfortunately, we've been overindulged in those foods. So um, the, I don't think there's, I don't think we need to do any more research to make a point that our food environment is a mismatch with, 
with humans in around what they need. So you can look at it from a physical health perspective that there's all so much research that's showing that our this food environment is really massively contributing to the obesity epidemic, uh, diabetes, um, cardiovascular risk, and all we're doing is putting the brain in there as well. And that shouldn't be um, surprising because the brain is the hungriest organ. So when you eat, you are predominantly feeding your brain. So think about it that way, that every time you're putting something in your mouth, you're making a choice to offer your, your brain something nourishing or nutrient depleted, offering your brain what it needs to function for you to be able to sleep well, um, manage your day well, not get distracted, um, that your mood is stable, it's not all over the place, you're not erratic and irritable, your food is going to be able to help you with all of those symptoms. So you should really be thinking about food first and and that, yes, it's absolutely cre- uh, contributing to our health issues. And it's, it surprises me that governments haven't kind of gone, we should really take this seriously <laughs> um, because we are paying for it in our tax dollars. So when, you know, when even if you think about it from a COVID perspective, the last two years, who were the people who were the who were most likely to end up in hospital? Why was this conversation never had? It was people with co-occurring comorbid problems. It was people who had underlying health issues. And what were those underlying health issues? They were lifestyle related, right? They had to do with your lifestyle, either being sedentary, not exercising, and not eating eating real whole foods. So we could have had a huge impact on the number of people who were hospitalized simply by addressing lifestyle issues. It's not to say that the vaccine didn't play a role and it wasn't important, but we could have tackled this from so many directions. But for whatever reason, as a society, we decided to just jump on one intervention and not embrace other things. And I don't know if it's because we didn't want to confuse the public. Um, we didn't want people to be, you know, selling snake oil or whatever. I mean, I don't know what happened, but I found it a really sad time in our history to see that there was no discussion of the lifestyle factors that were contributing to um, the severity of your illness. It's a bit of a worry. But that's where we are again history in history. Maybe in a hundred years, where our future generations will look look back at us, hopefully, and go, "What the hell was wrong with them?" Fingers I can only crossed. hope. Yeah, because we really have messed up in a lot of ways. Here's <laughs> so. a bit of a um, tricky question: Since the results of your studies are so promising, did you perhaps receive? any sort of pushback from conventional medicine that relies heavily on drugs? Of course I have. (laughs) Goodness. Of course. Yes. I've had, it's been a constant battle um, every step of the way. So if you look at my TEDx talk, you, you may or may not have noticed that there's a flag on there that says, don't watch this. Um, And she's spoken outside of curatorial guidelines because she simplifies legitimate studies. Well, who else has got a flag on their TED talk that says, you know, she, you know, this person has simplified legitimate studies. I mean, that was after a big battle because they, 
they had said before that there was no evidence. There was another flag on there and I had to fight to get it taken down and changed. And that was the wording that they 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 would agree to, um, but they wouldn't take the flag down. And that was, you, you can just Google that and just have a look at, you know, Julia Rutledge TEDx flag, and you'll see a whole bunch of controversy on that issue. So um, it, it's, it upsets me that it's on my, on my TEDx talk, that there's this flag that says that. Um, but at the same time, you're kind of like, well, whatever. I mean, who doesn't simplify in an 18 minute talk? Um, so I, you know, it's not the end of the world anymore, but it was really upsetting when that happened. So that's just one example, a very public example of where I've been, um, you know, where they're trying to discredit me. So that's a way of discrediting you. Um, but I've had over and over, I mean, it's difficult to publish this, this studies. Um, I, it's been difficult to get the studies through ethics. I've had people challenge me on my conflicts of interest. I get no money from the, the, the companies that make the products that I've studied. And yet people don't believe that they, they can, they're kind of like, she must be making money out of this. I'm like, no, I am not. I mean, we now, now that I've written a book, you know, you can get book royalties. It's not, you know, massive amount of, of, of money. Um, but you could say I get royalties now and that could be seen deemed as a conflict of interest around selling books. Um, but at the same time, uh, some of that money goes back into research. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't, you know, it's hard to, hard to get grants to, to do this research. And so that's a way of, of raising money. But, um, you know, I'm cl squeaky clean when it comes to um, those conflicts that drug companies, you know, people who have, who have studied, who publish about drugs, they have conflicts of interest in the sense that they've been funded by the drug companies that make the drugs that they're studying. That has not happened here. And that's really, really hard for people to believe that I really don't make money out of the sale of the products that we studied. We publish the studies as they are. We they're they're always messy. It's never like a completely clean, you know. In every measure that we used, there was benefit of the micronutrients over placebo. We we tell you the whole story um, around some things. There were no group differences, and those are put. You can just go and look at the 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 original studies, and you will see that that's what we've done. So um, hard to believe, I know, but. Um, you know, I, I have a good job. I don't need, you know, I don't need to be selling supplements on the side. Um, you know, a university professor is, is reasonably paid in New Zealand. And so there's no need for me to be making any more money. I mean, I just, but, the, and I, but then I don't want to, you know, really feed into this capitalism that, you know, that we all, and, and materialism that sadly is another, I think, plague of our current environment <laughs> so. i mean it will be extremely amusing since you're advocating for us to eat real food that your quote unquote sponsors were real food i mean doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense yeah well some people do actually get sponsors you'd be surprised at from you know the the, the beef industry or the lamb okay. industry or the dairy industry so you you could get funding from those companies as well i mean everyone makes money so or needs to, you know can make profit so there are there are some people who will be their their work will be funded by by industry in some way but mm. our my work isn't and it yeah, means I mean, it's harder to do because you don't have as much luxury of funding, but it just means yeah. that it's been, it's been a fun to be creative and find out and figure out ways of running studies without a lot of money. And you can do it. It's, it's not, 
it isn't necessarily um, a problem to run a study without a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and also you didn't advocate for us to adopt a carnivore diet or something, just, you know, eat beef or something. You just said eat real food. Eat real food. You know, and that can include though meat. And of course. so I'm not, um, I worry about our currently that we are uh, you know, going down this route of the what, what's called plant-based. But, but if you were, if you go and look at the ingredients of an impossible burger, You know, tell me how many ingredients are listed there. So, and then start to, you know, ask the question that I asked you before. Are these a whole bunch of things that are made in a lab? Do we really want to go down that route of that we are entirely dependent on eating things that have been made in a lab? Think about it. So we need to really be careful about what's happening right now, which is in is in, under the guise of climate change and supporting reduction of of um, carbon emissions. Is is there's profit always to be made? So be careful. Mm -hmm. So and you so wouldn't say that we're eating that our our current diet is too rich with meat, and that we're eating too much of this um, store bought I mean, cheap meat. I, I I personally only eat, you know, I make an effort to make sure that if I'm eating meat, then it's grass-fed meat and it's ethically grown. Because that's important, is that you're treating the animals care, with great care. Um, so that that's something that I would consider. But that I'm not, I certainly wouldn't say, well, don't, don't eat meat and just eat plants because the way we've been treating the animals, because we can change the way we treat our animals. That can be, that's something that's addressable. It's not something that we just kind of go, well, then just stop eating meat. The research shows that a little bit of meat does seem to be good for us. There are some people who seem to be able to get away without eating meat, like, you know, but, uh, you know, and they're healthy vegetarians and vegans. And that I would say, fantastic, great. But so many people I have met are ill as a consequence of eliminating uh, meat and fish from their from their diet and dairy. So you know that all of these things that we have evolved to 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 use and to to consume, and it's some of the nutrients um, that are available in those products you can't get them out of a vegan vegetarian diet. So you have to supplement. And so again, I would be kind of questioning a diet where. Um, a cornerstone of it is that you must supplement with, you know, B12, for example, because you can't get that out of a vegan diet. So again, you kind of have to, you have to start looking at this and go, is that logical to embrace a diet where I have to take a supplement in the morning in order for me to have the full array of nutrients that my body needs? I mean, again, it's kind of nonsense. It's like absurd. I know that there'll probably be vegans and vegetarians listening to you who will probably be very angry with what I have to say about that. But I just think we need to be careful about just going to these extremes of elimination of things that we know contain a really nutrient rich and, and contain nutrients that you can't get out of some of these other restrictive diets. It's not that you should be eating, you know, carnivore is an is as another extreme. And there are people who I've approached me and, to and I've talked to who are, uh, you know, are, would, would say they embrace the carnivore diet and that they feel great. And I'd be again going, great, that's fantastic. But I don't think that's necessary for everyone. 
So I think moderation in general is a good principle to go with and eating some meat, um, but lots of plants is, a, is, you know, lots of those healthy fats, things that our ancestors ate, I think is a really good place to start with. Um, and, you know, may, again, like even with the omega-3s and, and uh, getting an adequate amount of omega-3s out of your diet, it is very hard to get DHA and EPA out of a fully vegetarian vegan diet without supplementing. So um, whereas you can get uh, the DHA and EPA out of a, uh, you know, a, an omnivore diet through eating consumption of fish for the most part. So understood um, really quickly. Time is running out. Um, I just have this one question, actually two, but we're, we're going to go quick. Um, number one, in the world of popular nutrition these days, the thing that everybody's talking about like all the time on all podcasts is fasting or intermittent fasting. Mm, um, yeah. What do you think of that? Hmm. Um, I have delved into that to see what has been done in in this the mental health arena, because there's a lot of people who will say there's a lot of physical benefits from following the fasting, you know, intermittent, doing intermittent fasting. But I'm, I'm, I try to sort of at least stay a little bit in my lane, which is that I'm a psychologist and I, I'm, you know, so, so studying physical effects is, is something that's outside of, I would see is outside of my expertise. So I've heard about the physical benefits, but I haven't seen anything that has really looked at those mental health benefits. You hear about it anecdotally that people feel like they, they just, they report feeling better and mentally better or the thinking is clearer. So I've heard those types of um, anecdotal uh, stories, but I haven't seen studies that have really directly used the intermittent fasting principles and applied it to try to help with somebody with a mental health issue. I would say from a mental health issue perspective, let's really stick to the basics, which is eat real food. When you start to make it complicated, it's hard to follow. So if you're taking someone who's really mentally unwell, and not only are you saying, you know, learn how to cook, because that's what you have to do when you eat real food. And, you know, you really have to go back to, again, some of the, the concepts that our ancestors knew about that, that we've forgotten and lost in this current generation. And then on top of that, you're limiting the window in which people can eat, or you're suggesting that you, you know, shouldn't eat for certain, you know, parts of the day or reduce your caloric intake and that you're getting all focused on calories and all of that. I just think that's making life a little bit too complicated uh, when it comes to mental health. And I don't think that's necessary. So unless there's a study that comes out that says this is really the cure-all for mental health problems is to, is to follow these intermittent fasting principles, I'm going to just at this stage, just stick with, stick with saying eat real food and, and you can eat it at, you know, you should, you should be sleeping properly and getting eight hours of sleep. So you'll have your fast at that point. Dr. Rutledge, uh, we're at the end, which means I have to ask you something trashy before you go, since this is your oh, trash. Yeah. Let's say you've had a couple of drinks, you know, with your friends, it was a pleasant evening and now you're walking home. And there's this horrible realization that your fridge is completely empty and there's nothing to eat back home. However, there's many takeaway options along the way. This is not an endorsement, obviously, but which suboptimal fast food meal are you going to get without (laughs) feeling completely guilty the next day? Well, I don't think guilt should be part of of That's a good start. Yeah. And, and if I indulge because of the circumstances, because there's no other food available and I have to, I accept that I eat 
so well most of the time that it doesn't matter that I have eaten something that is not going to be adequate for my brain at that point in time. So I don't think there's a, you need to feel guilty about it if most of the time you're eating really well. And that's what I said before is then enjoy it, indulge, enjoy it. Um, As long as you're, you're generally feeding your brain well, it can, it can tolerate an occasional time where you may not um, feed it something that is that nourishing. But it just means that most of the time you need to be mindful of what you're, you're feeding your brain. And then under those circumstances that you describe, where my fridge is empty, which would be unusual, um, but and no, no food in there. But if that were the circumstances, then, you know, that's, you have to go with um, sometimes having to compromise on on things. And as long as you've been generally pretty good, I think it's absolutely fine. Dr. Rutledge, this was unbelievably informative and, dare I say, hopeful. Um, where can people get your book, The Better Brain? Well, it's, I mean, it is available in Europe. It's published under Penguin Random House. So, um, you know, so if you go- Googled The Better Brain in my name, you would definitely find it. I've done, I've also, since that TEDx talk, I've done, a, there's a lot of talks online that I've done. Um, a lot, I don't try to, you know, I, I, I think this kind of information should be freely available. I don't, I personally don't charge people to hear what I have to say. You can get the book out of the library. I really don't care if you purchase it or not, borrow it from a friend. Um, as long as you get the information, I've also done a free online course so that if you really wanted to delve into this and you could go onto the edX platform, which is edX, E-D-X, and you just look for the mental health nutrition um, and my name again, Julia, there's no one else out there with my name, which is useful. And so they can, you could find that if you really wanted to do a full, you know, six module, you know, course, if you wanted to, you can pay a little bit of money to edX and get a certificate, but you don't need to. Um, you can get all the information without having to pay. So it's entirely free to people to do, um, to learn and educate and learn about um, something that, you know, we've just forgotten and I just want to put it back on the table. This was amazing. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Mm-hmm. And I hope we had we, we have the chance to do this again in the future. Thank You're you. You're welcome.